this week on the Backtable Podcast. If I'm interviewing you and there's a point at which you say something and you get emotional and you take a pause because you need to collect yourself, I'm going to make a note of that in my transcript. I'm going to take what are called field notes. And field notes are going to say the question about this particular thing had an emotional break. So when there is a break in the transcript, when I'm listening to the audio, so I record everything and then transcript it verbatim. When there's a break in the audio, I know, oh, that's the point at which she was emotional about this particular component. And that that emotional nature of that particular question or response gives us some additional data. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast, where we discuss all things ENT. We bring you the best and brightest in our field with a hope that you can take something from our show to your practice. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast. My name is Gopi Shaw, and I have an awesome guest today. I have Kevin Sykes. He's the director of clinical research at the Health and Wellness Center for Baylor Scott and White Health in Dallas, Texas. Dr. Sykes obtained his master's in public health and his PhD in health policy and management from the University of Kansas Medical Center, where he was the director of clinical research for the Department of Otolaryngology for almost 18 years. Dr. Sykes is here to give us an intro to health equity research. Welcome to the show, Kevin. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I really appreciate the invitation and excited to talk to you today. I'm excited to talk to you as well. I feel like there's so much to learn. But before we get into it, Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the research that you do? Absolutely. One of the things that I think we do in professional talks often is kind of get these disclosures. And I think in this particular arena, it's really important to disclose first and foremost that I'm a cisgender white man and my lived experience doesn't always reflect the experiences of some of the communities that I work in. And so I think it's really important to kind of ground everything in that frame of reference. I do everything every day I can to try to remind myself that that may be a bias that's playing a role in my thoughts or my writing or my work, but that's an important clarification, I think, up front. So all of that being said, I've been really fortunate over the years to have been included in some great teams, and none of my research happens alone. Back in around 2005, I was recruited to help facilitate clinical research at the University of Kansas Medical Center, Department of Otolaryngology, head and neck surgery. And I'll admit to not knowing anything about the field prior to that. And really, I can remember recalling when I was interviewing for the position, I can remember recalling one of my pre-med friends from college declaring, I want to be an otorhinolaryngologist because it's the longest name of any of the specialties. And I was like, I can appreciate that. So I came to the field really with just a decent handle on biostatistics, epidemiology, and research design, and that was what I was bringing to the table. But I I learned to adapt to that new environment and, and really got excited about helping my surgeon colleagues who helped me learn all the lingo and all the clinical knowledge I needed, but really helping them to kind of elevate their research projects. So that was a big part of what I did there. And I also found that I needed more training. So I pursued a PhD in health policy and management at that point, really saying I wanted a broad understanding of, of what was limiting people's access to care and how underserved communities of the world might ultimately experience things differently than I have. And that that passion I had to make sure that underserved communities had a better opportunity to thrive was really what was driving most of my work. So I moved from that PhD really to focus on on head and neck cancer and how the social determinants of health play a role in head and neck oncology outcomes. So I'm super interested in how we can prepare patients and their caregivers and their loved ones for complex treatments and really want to understand how we can personalize the approach to delivering that information rather than leaning on this kind of one-size-fits-all clinical approach that sometimes is the default. So we spent a ton of time developing a longitudinal registry study, which helps us track standard clinical and healthcare delivery metrics, but at the same time tracks quality of life over the experience Um, it, It captures information on anxiety, satisfaction with the information that they have received, and those kinds of things, which ultimately gives us a better picture of what it's like to be a patient and a caregiver in this setting. 
And so all of that really fed into what I was doing. And so now I've kind of moved on to, to Dallas and working in this new spot at Baylor Scott and White Health, which honestly was a, a pursuit of getting upstream. You know, we sort of have these analogies that relate to healthcare and especially health disparities. And we talk about being downstream or upstream from the causes of these outcomes. And, and the intent for moving to Dallas was to get more into the community, get more grounded in community-based participatory research and stuff like that, which allows us to do a little bit more around health disparities in marginalized communities. That's really great. Before we get into research-specific, um, I wanted uh, to see if you could just tell us broadly, what is health equity to you and how do you fit that in exactly into research? And it's interesting because, you know, you make the full disclosure and it it alludes to the, quote, equity lens. Um, tell us a little bit about sort of equity in general and and research and sort of why some of that terminology is important too. Absolutely. I think health equity is a really difficult conversation in the United States because, frankly, it's it's grounded in politics. It's grounded in a whole host of kind of historical mistreatments of populations. And I think that's an important grounding for the work that we do. We have to understand the history. We have to understand the politics of medicine and how that plays a role in how people either thrive or die in good situations or bad situations. And, and I think we have to think about what structural components may be contributing to that, whether it's structural racism or structural economic barriers that have been put in, in the way of systems because we are largely an employer-based system in the United States for insurance. And I think we have to understand that. And, and to me, health equity and health equity lenses really realize that context and recognize that no one comes to healthcare or medicine in a silo. They don't come just to the table having only this condition, whatever it may be. They bring with them all of their cultural and economic and other social constructs to the table with them. And sometimes we get really clinical in the, in the space of healthcare and we don't bring those things into, into focus, I would say. And we sort of leave out the ideas that are, are limiting people's experiences, whether it's in that immediate clinical exposure or it's in the historical kind of contributors to the health or the absence of health in their life. And so I think if you, you know, you drive me toward kind of picking a particular metric or something that we might need to look at, I think life expectancy is one that's super important. And if I was forced to say, like, what's the single metric that means the most in this context when we talk about health equity, I think life expectancy is one of them we should consider. And I bring that up because there's plenty of data to support the fact that life expectancy varies dramatically by zip code. There's a lot of work that's been done in that space. And in my current role, the two zip codes that we work in the most have a life expectancy of 68 years or mean life expectancy of 68 years. But then when you move one zip code to the north, it increases to 76. If we go two zip codes to the north, it jumps to 90. So at some point we have to say, like, obviously these things are linked to socioeconomics, but it's also linked to race, ethnicity, education levels, healthcare access, all of these different contributors that are social in nature that really are varying dramatically across those same zip codes. And so we talk about redlining, we talk about historical segregation of communities, we talk about all of those things on a routine basis when we bring up health equity because it's all part of the picture. I like the example that you use and, you know, it is crazy. I think I was a, when I was at UT in Dallas, I was in one of the GME conferences and it was looking specifically at life expectancy and the zip codes are literally not even like a mile from each other. You know, it's very short distances. And I don't think that was sort of, I guess, a light bulb moment for me where I was like, wow, I just, I didn't even, it was just mind boggling to me that you can live within blocks and have such different life expectancies. And within those blocks, there's a change, as you said, in terms of race, socioeconomic status, and the list goes on. Talk to me a little bit about some of that. We can kind of expand on social determinants of health and health disparities. A lot of these are buzzwords, and it would be nice to have a little clarity 
um, so we understand how to use them. Absolutely. I think of these as kind of a pathway. And so if you begin the pathway at the social determinants of health, which most generally is defined as kind of the social, structural, and geographic drivers of health outcomes, when we then look at those things as they relate to a healthy life or healthy choices, they can be called social risks, right? So if things are hindering someone's ability to make a healthy choice or have a healthy lifestyle, then that's a social risk. And so we talk about social determinants of health, which honestly is falling a bit out of favor because people don't like the connotation of determinant in that it is somewhat unflexible. And so some people will change that to social drivers of health or social inhibitors to health. There's different language that's coming out. And I think people are struggling with what what really to land on to really anchor it in the concrete values that, that we know are driving health conditions. But that's a big part of it. And then ultimately, the places that we live, work, play, and pray, which you've probably heard that phrase before, ultimately influence how well we do. And so when we talk about health equity or health disparities, that's where they come in. So they start to come in on the question of like, what is a social risk or how does social risk or social determinants of health manifest themselves? And so health disparities become the metric that we use to evaluate the differences in these health values of all types. And ultimately, health equity would be sort of ultimately referring to this consistent level of health and access to health resources across the board, regardless of the different social determinants of health. So when we achieve health equity, if that's ever possible, we will have dropped barriers that are created by all of these social constructs that ultimately hinder people and hinder their ability to thrive. When you're starting to think about doing research and you want to integrate health equity into your research, how do you know where to begin? How do you know what questions to ask? It's a great question. I think humility is obviously my default in that space. It's always saying like, I'm going to humbly approach whatever problem it is, understanding that I don't. I may want to see a disparity when there is no disparity, or I may be blind to a disparity because I'm aggregating data in a particular way. So let me give a really concrete example of this. We're working on a paper right now, which we hope to submit here in the next week or so. And one of the things that we're talking about in this paper is that oftentimes when you read research around health disparities, the racial categories are aggregated into groups because of numbers. This is particularly true in head and neck cancer, where we're talking about a relatively rare cancer in the grand scheme of things. And we, tar- we start to aggregate racial groups into an other category, or we'll say there's white, there's African-American and black, and then there's everybody else. Knowing fully that health outcomes in our Asian communities and the health outcomes in our American Indian populations are not identical. And yet they're grouped together for statistical reasons in some cases. But what that does is that hinders our ability to see the inequities. And so we have to ask questions about, am I over-aggregating data? Should we be disaggregating data and breaking it down and saying, is there something going on here for black women? Is there something going on here for black men? Is there something going on here for American Indians relative to some other population? And so for me, when we start to design or talk about health equity research, we have to ask the questions of where, where might we be missing differences? So from a statistical standpoint, this becomes very challenging, but it's super important to ask questions about how diverse was the population that this, that this paper is based on. If our diversity is absent from clinical trials, then we can't be confident that those interventions are effective for all populations and that the data that we've generated are generalizable. We have to ask at least, we have to consider the possibility that some of this data may be only representative of a particular community in a particular place. And I think that's a big part of it. Yeah, it makes you have to step back and ask, who are we not including, right? Which, whether it's communities, hospitals, you know, research centers, individuals, like who's not? Because the head neck cancer is happening. <laughs> uh, so for sure. those, the groups that we don't have more numbers in, we just maybe don't have those numbers because 
Exactly. And I think one of the pieces of that too, that's really important is when we base our understanding of outcomes and our understanding of what's driving outcomes on large databases that are that are only contributed to from your tertiary academic medical centers or whatever. So if it's if we're talking about the National Cancer Database or we're talking about SEER, those centers are not all fully representative of a safety net community hospital. They may not be representative of some of the areas where our historically minoritized communities seek care. And so how could we possibly understand what's going on in those communities when their data is not part of not part of the large databases that we're that we're assuming to be representative of a general experience. And how do you start to aggregate that data? Like who do you start working with? So I think one thing we have to do and what we're trying to do in my group is to use community health workers as part of our recruiting teams. So when we're working in the context of clinical trials and we're trying to recruit for clinical trials, we use community health workers because their their awareness of what's going on in their population that they work in or that they relate to most when they understand that better than we do, then they understand how to craft the messaging to encourage people to be participants in in research. So we have to reduce barriers to participation in research from a cultural standpoint, but we also have to recognize that this work is more difficult and it takes more time, and we have to build our budgets in a way on a research study that includes appropriate compensation for participation that recognizes transportation barriers to arriving at a particular healthcare center. We have to recognize all of that. And then if we're doing large data studies that are from that are really from multi-center studies or, or whatever it may be that is aggregating data in a way that we have to say, can we break down racial categories in a way that will give us more information about what's going on? And if that breaks it down to the point that the sample sizes are too small, then we need to be really careful about what we're saying from a generalizability standpoint. And we need to be very honest with ourselves about what this data actually says. Does this actually say something about high-income individuals who are all white? Or does this say something about all people coming to all sorts of care centers? You know, you mentioned partnering with uh, community health workers. Is that difficult to do? You know, do because you got you need the community health worker to drink the juice of the right to buy in of the project as well. Absolutely, no. I think we we've done a lot of work, and and this predates me, but our organization and our group has done a lot of work to train community health workers, and then to continue to give them opportunities to grow professionally. And that growth professionally sometimes looks like moving from working in a program setting where they're doing diabetes education or they're doing work with access to food or whatever it may be, and then pivoting them toward research and asking, okay, how do we train them appropriately so that they understand the purpose of research? How do we continue to expose them to information that helps them realize how important it is for them to be represented in clinical trials. And that's been an educational process, like I said, that predates me and my current position. But there is a movement across the country to do this. And I think that's an area where there's a lot of opportunity from a policy standpoint and a lot of opportunity from just a structuring of our research teams. Yeah. And, you know, I would imagine that when you do have a good relationship with your community health workers, they're also bringing a perspective and, you know, adjusting that equity lens and filling in those blind spots or maybe, you know, that I imagined this being an issue. It's not. It's actually this. And, you know, adjusting and making the research actually sharper as well. Tell me about, you know, we t- you mentioned funding and time. Who do you need buy-in from? I mean, you, you need like administrative, like you're going to need some partnership from the top as well. So tell me about that. Absolutely. I think we have to have buy-in from everyone involved in the budget-making process and everyone involved in the funding process. So that's asking questions of our funders, be it NCI, NIH, or NSF, or whomever it may be, throw out whatever acronym soup you want. But we have to be encouraging them 
to read the science as it relates to community representation and research. And that's really hard to do. I was in a meeting just last week, and I won't disclose kind of what the circumstances of that were, but it was very obvious that this national organization is unaware of what it really means to bring community representation to the table in research. And it's not, this is not meant to condemn them. It's meant to say that this is a developing area of science and we are learning how to engage our community action boards or our participant research advocates or whatever it may be in this space. And to ask questions about you, like they need to be involved in the design of the study. And so from a funding standpoint, we need them as a full-time equivalent, not as a, oh, you know, pay them $40 an hour every time they show up. I just think that's a short-sighted view of what they bring to the table. And so they are part of our research design. They are part of our conversations about recruitment. They are part of our conversations about analysis and, importantly, part of our conversation about dissemination. If we're going to disseminate information that we have learned from these communities, then that needs to be grounded in the experiences of our community health workers and other community representatives as well, because we can't just go out and say, let's have a conversation about this data without understanding how they're going to perceive that conversation. And so everything from top to bottom needs to include them. And so they should be part of the research team in a key personnel role just like I am. And I may be the principal investigator, but that doesn't mean that I don't have six or seven other people that are really key to the success of that grant. And they need to be part of that group. I want to take it back to design a little bit in terms of research design. But I wanted to first start with, you know, terminology for quote variables. You know, when you think of variables and we think of groups, you know, there are resources online, whether it's through, I think, the CDC or the WAMC, the NIH, in terms of how to quote label groups. Can you tell me a little bit about sort of if you're designing a research project, tell me what approach, how do you know what terminology to use? And is that changing too? Does that change? It is changing for sure. The most obvious example of that is gender. I think, you know, we've gone from in my career, which I'm going to call short, even though it's probably not. <laughs> I would consider myself kind of mid-career at this point. But in the time that I've been doing this work, where I started out working in HIV and STI, community-based epidemiology. That's where I started. And when I was doing that work, there were only probably three categories as it related to gender. And that was, well, there was four. There was man, woman, then trans man, trans woman. And that was it, right? So now we know that most of our organizations that speak to this work are drafting really long documents about how we define gender and how we define different groups. I think it's really important to be inclusive in the context of these questions and to always leave categories for people to contribute their own definition of what their, what their race, what their gender may be. That gets really messy as a quantitative person. It gets really difficult because at some point we have to say, well, if we only have one representative from that particular community or that particular identity, then what can we say? And how do we say that or how do we try to say something about that without identifying them and without, I guess, the best way to say it might be to labeling them in a way that's going to out them or make them uncomfortable or make it obvious that we're talking about a particular individual. And I think we have to be super careful with that, but we also want to be we don't want the first question out of the gate to be a demographic question that puts a person off and they no longer want to participate. So when we talk about race, we sort of talk about race as a social construct, but ethnicity is much more complex. So ethnicity, we might say, okay, the, the census categorizes it as Hispanic or non-Hispanic, but that's a very, very small portion of it. All you're really doing in that case is creating a subset of the racial category. And, and that doesn't necessarily speak to the genetics or the heredity that, that is involved in a particular group of people. And oftentimes we have to ask questions about what's the point of the variable. And if there's no point of the variable, if your intent is not to 
disaggregate your data in a particular way around race, I would just skip it. If you don't have a reason that race in and of itself is playing a role in your particular outcome, then you should just not collect that data because it's not helpful. Ultimately, it's going to, in the best case scenario, bias you towards something. In the worst case scenario, just really confuse you and make a muddy mess of the analysis. Now, we have to ask questions about, are we using race as a proxy for socioeconomics? Are we using race as a proxy for racism? Are we using race as a proxy for some other form of oppression? If that's the case, then we should ask questions about oppression. And we should not ask questions about race. And so I think that's super important to to really, as a researcher, wrap your brain around what is the point of this variable. And, you know, when we're thinking about things from a genetic standpoint, then race and ethnicity may matter, but we want to be very specific about those things and make sure that we're building the tree appropriately as we begin to sort of stratify the data. So when you design a study looking and your, you know, your focus is on health equity, do you have to design it differently than your quote regular research studies? I, I hate to, especially after we just talked about Barry Wolfson terminology, I hate to say it that way, but um, do you design it differently? Are there other, you know, everything, like you said, isn't always going to be a yes or no answer. It's not always going to fit in the multiple choice. Tell me about design. I think there's a lot of questions that we have to ask in that context. The first one that always comes to my mind is the logistics or operations side of research. So when we're, when we're designing that study, we have to be comfortable with the fact that this is likely to take us longer than a traditional clinical trial or, or clinical research project that might be recruiting from high-income individuals or insured populations. So we have to be comfortable with extending that timeline. And that means we have to be more realistic about concerns around sample size and, and power. So not to get too far into the weeds of this, but there's always a host of assumptions that go with sample size calculations and always a host of assumptions that go with your power analysis. And you have to really weigh the reality of life in that conversation. So you're, the practicality of, of recruitment is part of that calculation. And in our case, we may have to accept lower power in order to achieve reasonable recruitment goals within the constructs of whatever the budget may be that's given to us or the sort of time parameters around our research design. If it's an R01, it's a five-year grant. You only have five years to do your recruitment and that doesn't give you any time to do analysis. So you have to think through those things logistically and be practical about what's really possible so that you don't overpromise at the beginning a massive recruitment and find at the end of the day that you're sacrificing diversity of your population in order to achieve your recruitment goals. So that's super important. And that being set up, I would say if we've got all of those things structured, then we need to be really careful about vetting all of our materials, making sure that our materials are available in multiple languages, making sure that the questions make sense in a low literacy setting making sure that if we're going to avoid the low literacy setting by administering surveys orally, then we need to be aware of the fact that that may exclude certain populations who don't hear well, that we need to be aware of what our setting is that we're going to be delivering those surveys in so that we don't create a circumstance where somebody's uncomfortable with revealing information that may reflect on them badly. So if you're in a public space asking a questionnaire, is that questionnaire going to make somebody uncomfortable to the point that they can't be honest? Is it going to ask them something about drug use? Is it going to ask them something about something else that's socially undesirable? And if that's the case, then we need to be sensitive to the constructs that we're putting them in when we ask those questions. So a lot of this is very operations-centric. But to me, the study doesn't have any value if you haven't thought through the operations and the logistics. So you can shoot yourself in the foot at the end of the day by undercutting whatever analysis you're trying to do from a health equity perspective because your your design of your study and the function of your study wasn't created in a way that, that makes it approachable for all. And yeah, sometimes it means... 
taking some of those variables or some of those questions and putting them in front of representative populations and saying, tell me how you interpret this question. You test the test or you test the survey first. Absolutely. Before you can say this is going to work as a tool in that specific group. But it still has to measure the same of what you're measuring in your other groups. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so we talk about validity and reliability a lot of times and people are like, well, this is a validated instrument. And I will always ask the question of in what context it was validated, but was it validated in a population that's similar to my population? If that's not true, then frankly, the conversations about your validity is our moots. It doesn't matter. You've asked a question. And you think you're getting one answer, but you're actually getting another. Even if you've translated it perfectly, it may mean something completely different for a whole host of other reasons beyond just language. So tell me about the role of like qualitative data within the health equity research, because it's almost like, you know, we're just kind of scratching the surface, I think, of a to then get it peer into, you know, this other angle that we're looking at. And so if we're just barely scratching the surface with a yes or no or multiple choice, do focus groups or qualitative data, what's the role of that in health equity? Hmm, that's a great question and one that, that hits me particularly because I'm a, a person that does both quantitative and qualitative work. So I'm very much of the opinion that when we sacrifice depth for breadth, when we go, which would be quantitative versus qualitative, then we often miss the point. So one of the studies that I published a few years ago was looking at why people experience delays between surgery and postoperative radiotherapy initiation. So we want them to get there within 42 days. What are the, what are the ramifications of that to all populations? And so asking questions in a survey will get you some data, but we had to start with a qualitative approach and do interviews. And so we did semi-structured interviews with these individuals, which allow us to work from a script similar to, you know, any interview that a journalist or someone else might do in a podcast or whatever it may be, but you also allow it to flow more naturally. So a semi-structured interview means that you have a series of questions, most of which you want to ask but they don't necessarily have to be asked in a particular order. They're going to flow more in a conversational style. So you want to check the boxes as you go to make sure you've hit all the key points, but you don't have to do it question one, question two, question three, question four. And that, that's really important when you start to dig into the depth of someone's experiences. Another example would be when we're doing work trying to understand why a particular population may have made a particular treatment choice more often than another one. And there's some data out there to support the fact that our Black African-American individuals and populations choose surgery less often than other populations in the context of head and neck cancer. And that's a very nuanced question. And a very nuanced research question requires a very nuanced research method. And so I think we have to dig into this idea of saying, we need in-depth interviews here or at least semi-structured in-depth interviews here to understand what people are experiencing and how the experiences may differ or vary slightly based on their racial identity. And so we have to ask questions that allow people to tell us their story and tell us about their lived experience. And that's what qualitative data does for us. It gives us that depth. And your goal of a qualitative study is never generalizability. Your goal is ex exploration of a concept or a phenomena. And the reason that you do that is because you want to know how do we design a research study around these concepts. If we were to flip to a quantitative methodology, would we need to ask a question in a different way? Maybe we don't want to say, why did you choose surgery? And why did you not choose? Why did you not choose surgery? <laughs> Maybe we need to ask the question of, were you offered the opportunity to make a decision between surgery and radiotherapy, primary radiation, whatever it may be. So if we don't have the depth of information around individual experiences, then we can't know how we need to nuance some of those questions. And oftentimes we'll just bring our white educated lens to the table and just assume that we know the question. And oftentimes we don't know how to ask the question right to get the answer that we want and we'll miss we'll miss those little inequities and we'll be like, well, there's some unexplained phenomena here. So 
And you get to the end of the day and to get like way down into the statistics, our model explains, you know, X percent of the variability in our, da- in our data. The remainder is just something we can't explain. But oftentimes if we ask qualitative questions, we can explain some of that variability. So when you do have qualitative data, what does that data look like? Because you're having conversations. And so is there a way to analyze that? Or is it like, you know, we've had, because then you also have to kind of interpret, right? Unless you're not necessarily putting people's actual quotes or maybe some of them that you're pulling out. I mean, there's still interpretation. How do you analyze that and, you know, present it? So there's a lot of rigor that goes into this. I think some people, especially people who are just only exposed to quantitative data in their background, don't appreciate the rigor that goes into research that is qualitative. And so there are strict rules about how you do analysis in this space. But we start with transcripts. So we're going to write down every word someone says. And if it's done well, we're going to include emotional things that may come up. So if in the midst of my interview, and if I'm interviewing you, and there's a point at which you say something and you get emotional and you take a pause because you need to collect yourself, I'm going to make a note of that in my transcript. I'm going to take what are called field notes. And field notes are going to say, the question about this particular thing had an emotional break. So when there is a break in the transcript, when I'm listening to the audio, so I record everything and then transcript it verbatim. When there's a break in the audio, I know, oh, that's the point at which she was emotional about this particular component. And that that emotional nature of that particular question or response gives us some additional data. And so we have what's called thematic saturation. And thematic saturation is where when we have asked questions over and over to a group of people, then we're beginning to get the same types of answers. Or we've kind of covered what we feel like is the full range of possible answers in this context. And so that thematic saturation may mean that we don't ask every question in future interviews. There may be certain questions that we drop because we've hit saturation on that particular question. So we feel pretty confident we know what's going on in that portion of the phenomena. But there are other questions we still need additional information about. And we pull out themes based on how people are talking about a particular circumstance or phenomena. So when I read a paragraph, I'm going to first, like to get this down to nuts and bolts, I'm going to read a paragraph all the way through, or oftentimes read an entire transcript all the way through. And I'm going to kind of take some notes on what I think were the key takeaways from that conversation. What jumped out at me in this conversation that seemed really important or that seemed unique? And so then someone else will review the transcript. So we have a second reviewer that will come through, do the same thing take some general notes, and then we construct. There's two different ways to construct what what we would ultimately lean on as kind of a data dictionary to make it quantitative. It's not really called that all the time in qualitative space, but that makes it a little bit more approachable for people who are more familiar with a quantitative perspective. And so we have different codes, and the code book, which is what I'm referring to here, is ultimately composed of different ways that people are talking about different things. So if we're talking about the conversation around surgery being offered or not being offered, one of the things that we're going to say is that there's a really quick yes and no, was surgery offered? And so we might pull that out. But then we're also going to say there was a conversation around surgery, but it was highly downplayed because of risk. And so there might be a code that we code as surgical risk was a concern or a one-sided conversation that felt very paternalistic. Maybe we're going to label a particular quote as representative of a paternalistic encounter with a provider. And so that's how we get to our themes. And so once we've got a code book, then we sort of, we begin to go through that code book and we say, okay, what are the things that are coming up over and over? What are the things that seem to be really, really resonating in this population? And then once we've established those themes, then we do what's called member checking. And member checking is where you take those themes back to some of the people that you've interviewed and you say, do these line up with your lived experience? Or can you imagine someone having this experience in this context? And that's where you begin to really full circle, kind of tighten up the data and say, yeah, this is, this is consistent with experiences that 
that our participants affirm, and we're going to call that a, a, a concrete theme. Wow. And so the member checking adds an extra step for the research participant, because not only have they sat down with you, it's not a circle the answer question. They're having a conversation and really getting into some potentially emotional things. And then they have to be available to circle back to make sure it's consistent with what they meant. Exactly. So we're going to, at the beginning, when we can send a participant for this study, say you may be selected to be one of our members that we check some of this information with. Are you willing for us to contact you in the future and talk through some of the analysis? So it becomes an additional opt-in or opt-out kind of component of our research consent form. Wow. And do you find that you have to get the help of the community health workers sometimes to help kind of, you know, make that, turn that corner to complete this? Because I would imagine attrition could be, you know, if somebody wanted me to do a research, I'm like, okay, fine. But then wait, you want to call me again in three months? Like, (laughs) right? Right. Or, Or six months or a year, whatever it may be. Yeah, for sure. We are very clear whether it's in a more traditional setting where there may be there may not be community health workers as research coordinators, but we're very clear as investigators when we train our teams to communicate to them the importance of every element of a particular study and how important it is for us to retain a relationship with this individual. And so my research teams have it drilled in their heads over and over and over. Research is about a relationship. And if we don't build relationships with our participants, then we have no opportunity to con- to allow them to contribute to the work or partner with them to contribute to work in the future, nor do we have any confidence that the, the information they've given us today is really reflective of their true experience. So if we have created a proper relationship from the very beginning, then our transcripts will reflect those emotional components. They will reflect that conflict or that challenge to the system or that recognition or acknowledgement of racism. Those are, in my opinion, when I'm reading through my transcripts, those are points where you're like, yep, we nailed it. We nailed the relationship portion of this because they felt comfortable revealing to us something that should routinely have made them uncomfortable. And a lot of that relationship building is in the community context as community health workers, but maybe in, in a clinical setting, it is a research coordinator. That's a great perspective. And it kind of leads me to my next question, which is what kind of impact health equity research can have in terms of policy and advocacy. And one point you just made is, hey, building that relationship with my research participant can also empower that participant to then continue to you know, use their experience or voice within that, within their community, within the field to push that cause. Tell me a little bit more, whether it's with that angle or the other ways you've seen the impact of health equity research when it comes to advocacy and policy. I mean, and those are different, <laughs> but they, you need the advocacy to help change policy too. Absolutely. So for us, this is kind of one of my passions. So you'll see me light up a bit if you were watching the video portion of this, but it's all because we have advocacy that we need to do, whether we are in a position of power like I am oftentimes because I'm a, you know, a researcher that's highly educated in all these kinds of things. And and we have to ask questions about what's my role in advocating for populations who are marginalized. And physicians are particularly well positioned to have these conversations with their policymakers at the state, at the local, state, and federal level, because they will listen to you. We need that support from our physician partners to take the data to our policymakers to have that conversation. A perfect example of this, some work done recently in Indiana to create a bipartisan effort to invest in public health infrastructure. So they've done a lot of work post-pandemic that said, hey, we made some good progress in certain areas as it relates to health and health infrastructure because we had this influx of money. And typically public health suffers from these two kind of circumstances of public health funding. So we have this big bolster of funding that comes in when a crisis happens like a pandemic or bioterrorism or whatever it may be. 
and there's a big bolster of money. So the public health infrastructure just grows dramatically. But then the funding evaporates when the crisis is over. And so when that happens, then you create a gap. And what they did was they went to their policymakers and they said, we've made a lot of progress on education because we invested in education. Look at all the progress we've made. Look at how much better we're doing. The policymakers said, yeah, we've made a lot of progress in education because we did invest. And so then they leveraged life expectancy data at the county level. And they said, if you look at our county level life expectancy data relative to other states in the United States, relative to other counties within the state of Indiana, then we begin to see that not all states, not all counties are performing equally. But if we invest, then we have a pretty high likelihood that we can move the needle like we did on education. And so they went to these policymakers with that data, that health equity data, and they said, we can do something about this, and it, it includes investing in public health. And it begins by us saying, we care about this data, and we care about making a difference in this data. So that really worked. Like they created some sustainable funding despite being a Republican-led legislature and a Republican governor. They still made progress toward investing in public health, which historically has not been something that is uniquely part of the Republican platform. And they did it by arguing with data. We know that it's better for populations to be healthy. We know it's better for business. We know it's cheaper to insure those populations. And we know that longer lives mean more meaningful times together with friends and family. And that resonates with people if you can get them to listen. So we have to figure out how do we use da data that's going to mean something to this particular policymaker? And how do we tell that story with a lens or through a megaphone, if you will, that's going to speak to them and that they're going to hear. And we have to be sensitive to what their motivations are and then cater our data accordingly. That's a great, interesting way to put it because you're right, you have to shape the message almost to what is meaningful to them and what they're ready for. Because sometimes the, the loud megaphone can help, but sometimes we also know it can it can be a turnoff too. And so, but you, you're right, it, it's how we frame it, but that same data can be I think framed a tweaked if you will you know just in terms of how it presented to push the envelope that needle forward you know some people are going to be ready for making leaps and bounds and others it's going to just be step by step but it's still something you made a really great point about having physician partnerships with health equity research and you're right there is a privilege and a platform that comes with being a physician people listen and with that, there is a responsibility, and it's almost like the choices we make, whether it is to do or not to do, they're both choices with that privilege and that education that we have. I wanted to ask you about, you know, medical education specifically and what your thoughts are on how the field of medicine can do more with the health equity research, the lens, the understanding. You, you know, we started the podcast and you, you discussed, uh, you mentioned, you know, historical context and history, politics, how it all fits. And granted, I've, <laughs> I've been out of medical school a long time now, but, you know, I worked with medical students and residents for a long time. And a lot of that is not in our education uh, or there's very little of it. Tell me your thoughts. How can we do better with our education? Yeah, there's so much work to be done in this space, but I think we have a motivated audience. I think our student populations today are more sensitive to this, are more aware of the differences in lives and the differences in quality of life. And part of that is because media bombards us with those images, and part of it is because we just have a more globalized society that allows people to trans sort of travel and experience different contexts and different cultural exposures that, that change the way people look at the world. And, and our students are just frankly more exposed to the plight of others in other places of the world routinely. And I think that generally has softened them to the idea that this is something we should care about. And I say that collectively. Obviously, there are some individual exceptions to that rule. But I think it's really important to 
recognize that we need voices in these rooms. We need health equity researchers speaking to medical students. We need to invite them to grand rounds. We need to change our M&M to include questions about health equity. We need to do all of these things around health education, whether that's in our residency programs or in our medical education for medical students. You have to have those exposures on a continuous basis. We need organizations like the AHNS. And I listened to your conversation with Dr. Watts last week or a couple of weeks ago, and she talked about you know creating these research opportunities for individuals who are historically underrepresented in medicine. And those are really important components. And we need to make people aware of how, how much progress we need to make. Yes, we have made progress in particular areas, but we still have so much work to do. And I think we need to continue to promote programs that allow people to see that either through research or through personal experience and, and to recognize that their lived experience is not universal and that their lived experience can be an exception or it can be the rule, depending. And I think we have to, we have to continue to diversify our workforce. We have to continue to diversify our, our education systems. But those are long games. That's a long very, very time-consuming project. And in the meantime, we need to make all of our residents and all of our medical students and all of our faculty aware of their own bias and aware of the experiences that they may be overlooking in their own clinics or in their own operating room based on the fact that they don't fully see how someone's social circumstance may influence their ability to adhere to whatever therapies have been recommended or to participate in a conversation or a medical decision-making process. Because frankly, they could have been in a situation where they've never been respected or where they've never been taught how to have those interactions and how to talk to their doctor or whatever it may be. And that dramatically influences medical decision-making. Those are great examples. I think the one that sticks out to me the most is the M&M, right? Like that's something that, you know, is the extra slide, you know, in the presentation because it's got to be consistently brought up and that dialogue has to be at all levels. And you're right, the medical students today in our early PGY one and twos, they come in with a, a different perspective. And but it also, I think, behooves uh, at the faculty and top down in terms of being consistent being open and pushing that envelope um, and being aware. And so you, I loved all the examples you gave. I just, in terms of application and consistency, I'm like, ooh, Eminem's the perfect spot. <laughs> yeah, we, we made a change at the University of Kansas with a lot of leadership from several of the faculty members, but especially Dr. Carrie Francis at KU. And, and one of the things that we did was apply a health equity component or a social determinants of health component to M&M presentations. And you say, like, what are the potential contributors to this circumstance? It's an easy change, but it's really important. Tell us a little bit about the core grant. Um, as we talk about some of the societies and what on a national level ENT is trying to do as well, how have you partnered? Of course. We're fortunate enough to pick up the inaugural GSK Health Equity Grant this year. And that proposal, I'm going to keep this as succinct as I can. The proposal has two aims. And really what, what it's grounded in is the idea that many of the publications on health disparities have done a great job of laying out the groundwork for interventions, but they haven't actually tested them. And, and so we're, there's very few that take action. And so what we're trying to do is establish a platform from which we can evaluate interventions. And one of the ways that we need to do that is to do what our first aim is aiming to do. That sounds ridiculous, but the, our first aim is to establish an expert consensus on the uniform data set for health disparities measurement in head and neck cancer. So what are the most meaningful, relevant, practical data points that everyone should be collecting across the board if they're doing a head and neck cancer research project? And what that does is that allows us over time to track improvements or reductions or expansions of disparities as we go. And that's a key that's a key achievement, I think. As an organization, there needs to be this basement for representation of data so that we know everybody's talking about apples and apples and that we're able to see progress as we make it, as we develop or design interventions. And the goal 
really is to draw down that those millions of variables and, and really come up with the most meaningful ones. The second aim is to apply that data set to a prospective multi-center cohort observational study to determine if we can use this data set to predict higher stage at presentation with head and neck cancer. So what we're trying to do is say, okay, we've got this data set now, let's apply it to six different centers across the country and see if we can take almost like a cross-sectional approach to understanding did this predict the stage at which they presented. We're going to look at other metrics along the way to discontinuity of care and whether or not they achieved radiotherapy when recommended after surgery, if they achieved that in a timely manner. Those will be key, those will be kind of secondary data analysis, but the really key point is the first the the stage at diagnosis. And it's really a pragmatic design to ask questions not only about the performance of the model but also the implementation of the data collection process. So we're really interested in barriers to our site. So with the program, or as the program as a whole faces these data to gather and interpret it and then launch a widespread national project after that. So we're going to iron out the kinks, if you will, and try to try to figure out what variables are really hard to collect and they would be super meaningful, but they're just not practical. And we want to do more pragmatically designed observational studies in order to get real data, not the perfect data that you get from a clinical trial where everything is controlled. We want pragmatic data to support the argument that health disparities are real, underrepresentation is real, and in the pragmatic setting, we can still predict whether or not someone has faced a bunch of barriers getting to care, which assumes that they will likely face barriers to care in their surveillance and downstream treatments that may be needed after their initial treatment. That's really great. I'm excited. I look forward to. I would imagine this might. This is going to take some time, and it's going to be super detailed and and thought thought out. And I'm excited. I think it's going to be super impact, impactful to the field of laryngology. For our listeners who want to read more or ha- get more resources about health equity research, uh, do you have any recommendations? I think there's always the formal education model that would take you through a master of public health degree or whatever, but that's not necessarily practical for most people. So I think there's there's opportunities oftentimes, especially if you're a faculty member, to audit courses around social determinants of health and health equity. And I think that requires some extra time and investment. But if you want to do this work, you need to invest in doing it the right way. And just hoping that you get it right is probably not going to work out real well. I will say partnering with health equity experts in your research projects, whether they're in the School of Public Health or, or some affiliate program or department in your institution is a good move. But if you're out in the community, those aren't necessarily relationships that you can build very easily. So I think it's really important to, to read widely. And, you know, we hope that the writing that my colleagues and I are doing will have some impact and open the eyes of our readers to new concepts and help them see where they can contribute. But I want to assume that that's not necessarily going to happen universally too. So I think you have to do a lot to read widely and read the public health literature. And And I'd also recommend another podcast, frankly. America Dissected is a podcast that's pretty popular, but they do an excellent job of talking about some of the many challenges that certain pa- patient populations and certain populations in general are facing around health and healthcare in the United States. And that's where I heard about what was going on in Indiana that I was talking about earlier. So that's a great place to just hear about what other innovative things are going on, but also continue to expose yourself to to some of the challenges that are related to population health and public health. And then it's a matter of just taking that lens that you've picked up from one other space and sort of shifting it to your otolaryngology work and saying, how does this manifest itself in my otolaryngology patients? That's awesome. Kevin, thank you so much. I've learned so much. I appreciate all your time. Just for the listeners who may, you know, who may not have caught episode 98 with uh, Alex Chu, the Health Equity Collaborative. Um, that's how I got to to meet Kevin, which I, I think now it's going to be the Society of Health Equity Otolaryngology, the Health Equity Collaborative. So reach out. I'm, if anybody's interested in that, let me know. Uh, we can let Alex Chu know. There's a lot of a lot of people very interested and it's wonderful. It's super awesome. It's a great place to meet people, learn from each other and a lot of research and cool things going on. You'd mentioned Carrie Francis. We did an episode with Carrie on mentorship feedback and coaching for our audience, check it out. It's episode 31. And then if anybody's interested on the 
episode that was mentioned with Dr. Tamar Watts is episode 129, the American Head Neck Society Scholarship for Underrepresented Medical Minority Medical Students. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I'm, I'm super excited that this is kind of gaining some steam here and that we're, we're beginning to build relationships across otolaryngology that are going to allow us all to move forward. This is a, academia can be kind of a self-promoting space sometimes. And I think this movement really has that, that collectivist approach to it that I think is exciting and has the real potential to have an impact. So I'm happy to be part of that team and part of that group. But more than anything, just happy to continue to hear these conversations come up in the otolaryngology spaces. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, Josh Spencer. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's version Hess. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Kinnebrew. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.